Good morning, listeners. So my name is Max, Maximilian Lineman, and I have a new show for you today. Just pulling up my show notes. And we'll get started. So this is first week of November, and we're going to talk about this new article called Plant Use in the Mesolithic Period, Archaeobotanical Data from the Czech Republic in a European Context. This is from December 2014, and from the journal Interdisciplinary Archaeologica Natural Sciences and Archaeology. It's a handful. That's a mouthful. Just drinking some coffee. I get this day started. I really enjoy this pod, this um, this article a lot, so I'm excited to share it with you. So I'm going to read you some stuff from it. Uh, they start off, this researcher, Zvel 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 in 1994, reviewed the temporal evidence and brought together information on finds and edible plant species from 74 northern European sites. He revealed that 40 sites, that at 40 sites only, the remains of Coralis, which is hazelnut, were reported. Additionally, 24 sites had only two species commonly hazelnut and oak, or water chestnut. Taxa such as prunus, kinopodium, nufar, nufer, nymphaea, rubus, polygynum, crotagus, rumex, philipendula, malus, or pyrus, had only been occasionally, occasionally reported. Apart from plant macro remains as such as um, seeds or nuts, direct findings, Zvelebil also discussed other lines of evidence of plant use, such as pollen data, artifactual, like um, like um, like stone uh, stone mortar and pestles, and paleopathological evidence, such as looking at bones and skeletons. He concluded that, based on these four, four, four lines of evidence, patterns of plant loot use in the Mesolithic period should be considered in terms of wild plant husbandry instead of incidental and opportunistic use of plants. And this is important because many believe that Neolithic was the time of plant domestication. So he was arguing that there was, there was an earlier time when people were starting it, especially in, in Europe. And let's look at the de- definition of Mesolithic. So Mesolithic comes to us from its Meso and Lithic, so Middle Stone Age. That's pretty pretty much. It's in between the Paleolithic and the in the Neolithic. <clears throat> and let me see if I can pull up. I'll pull up a picture. Um, I'll put one in the show notes of a structure. But um, in European context, it talks about different spans throughout Eurasia, but it usually refers to the final period of hunter-gatherer cultures in Europe and Western Asia, between the end of the last glacial maximum, so where, how far, like the furthest that the glaciers were this, were in the south, so how far glaciers had, had um, 
advanced south and then they were starting to retreat. And that's why it's the last glacial maximum because it's the last place where they were the furthest south in the Neolithic Revolution. It spans between 1500 to 5000 5, BP. And so, oh, this is there in Southwest Asia. So this is different periods, there's different periods and Neolithic meaning the new stone age. So different technologies emerging. But back to our show notes. Where are we? Okay. Just checking that. Um, checking that everything's okay with the uh, recording. Yeah, we're still recording. Beautiful. So <clears throat> according to Kelly, this is in the same paper, but they're reciting another person. An atlas. They made an ethnographic atlas in 1995. Diets who gathered... Com- gathered component including small mammals and fish varied they're obviously varying very they're he's saying that they all varied so much um uh, taking together these observations suggests that the plant component in the hunter-gatherer diet is not negligible on the other hand which should be a cautious since as already mentioned food sources vary by latitude environment and season <clears throat> that's true so it's landscape specific this is clearly apparent in the example of the Kalahari Kung people who consider 85 plant species edible. However, more than half of the entire plant diet, so more than half of the calories, is formed by a single species. This is Manongo, Mon- Mongongo, or the Latin is Shinziophyton ratanii. <clears throat> And go further in the paper. According to Deitch, 1996, the following five main criteria may be observed to enable the detection of wild plants manipulated by envi- by human. Excuse me. I'll do that again. The following five criteria, main criteria, may be observed to enable the detection of wild plants manipulated by humans. Number one, ecology, which can be used to identify the presence of taxa outside their natural environment. So. Where if there's, um, I guess if there's, well, if they're really, if they're domestic, if they're, let's say, wild, wild apples in Kyrgyzstan, and if they appear in Italy, maybe that's the presence of um, travel. Number two, number of plant remains, since overrepresentation of syntaxa may reflect gathering instead of accidental um, input into the, uh, the sample, which makes sense. Number three is carbonization, which may indicate some processing activities. Number four is fragmentation, also suggesting possible plant processing practices. And number five, well, this is kind of go back to number one. Um, they kind of go back and forth, but spatial distribution as location in archaeological structures may reflect anthropogenic or human-generated manipulation. They go on. Although traditionally Mesolithic communities were not expected to clear forests, as these disturbances, fa- this these disturbance phases visible in pollen diagrams, for example, in Britain and recently also in the Czech Republic, are associated with evidence of regular and recurrent burning and clearance activity delaying forest regeneration. Such burning of the vegetation is documented 
by not only not only by the permanent presence of microcharcoal in pollen records, but also the increased incidence of certain anthropogenic. Excuse me. Start again. I just lost my place. Uh, anthropogenic pollen indicators. So these plants that these are plants let me say that again such burning of the vegetation is documented not only by the permanent presence of microcharcoal in pollen records but also the increased incidence of certain anthropogenic pollen indicators these plants these are plants that prefer open habitats such as thalachucrum rumex melampyrum plantago lanceolata which is plantain poaceae which is grasses and those that expand to fire-affected areas, including Teradium um, aquilinium or Coluna vulgaris. Teradium is a, is a fern. Despite all this, mesolithic sites are almost everywhere in the world accompanied by large amounts of microcharcoal, which is found in sedimentary records. This plays into the idea of burning forests as a usual way of dealing with nature in a conscious conscious and um they don't use the word conscious but actually i put that in conscious and continuous presence of microscopic charcoal in sediments is now also considered as a reliable indicator of human activity during the pre-agricultural holocene or also known as before the neolithic revolution going on Forest clearance would have led to particular advantages for the propagation of edible plants and clearings also served to facilitate hunting as well as the mobility of human populations, as well as biodiversity. And I put that in biodiversity, meaning you have you have different stages of vegetative growth with it, and that means you have a forest and you have a field next to it, and you have a young forest and an older forest. Different creatures like to live in it. And different plants will grow there. Different insects would be there. Different birds would be there. You know, Yo Wilson is known for saying that. In his, I'm, I'm wasn't sure where I heard this on, from a forger in Britain, but he said that Yo Wilson said that biodiversity in Britain was highest just prior to the industrial revolution in the early 1800s. And why is that? Well, because people were doing a mix. They were mixed. They were on the landscape, doing mixed activities, farming, milling, quarrying. They were industrious people, but in, they, there wasn't a mass, there wasn't, um, you know, a migration away from cities, which stopped people, I'm sorry, a migration into cities, which took people away from farms, which made fields or not only turned into forests, but made young forests turn into old forests and it created more homogeny going on nonetheless environment and the trees within it should be considered as more than mere background to human activity in this regard it is important to distinguish between two possible modes of human environment relationships the first can be described as a beneficent, beneficent human environment relationship where human and non-humans influence one another in a mutually beneficial way. This is in contrast, however, to another mode of human environment relationship, a concept of wilderness where fear, 
is a primary motivator determining behavior in the surroundings are more often seen as evil rather than good. Going on, the presence of pollen of cereals such as wheats and barley during the Mesolithic period also correlate with, correlates with the pollen of semicultural plants or weeds such as Plantago lanceolata, which that is considered to be one of the most, most reliable indicators of agriculture. Given that the evidence for cereal cultivation during the Mesolithic is provided, for instance, from Switzerland, Austria, France, Estonia, and the British Isles, some scholars consider the occurrence of pollen indicative of agriculture activities during the late Mesolithic as a widespread phenomenon in Europe. Let's take widespread phenomena. So why? Right? It doesn't it almost doesn't make sense, but it's there. Another explanation of the wild of the appearance of pre-Neolithic cereal type pollen would be the cultivation of indigenous wild grasses. With respect to the Mesolithic period, SL, SLR Mason in 2000 considered the possible role played by fire and challenged the traditional view that fire might have been used mainly to improve hunting. Instead, she focused on the manner in which burning contributes to acorn gathering and, pos and posits that Burning reduces competition for nutrients from other species, and in doing so, concentrates available resources to the acorn crop. In addition, removing ground cover facilitates the gathering of acorns, which is true. If there is less debris, you see acorns more. Hazelnut shells, hazelnut shells represent very abundant macro remains at most sites. Very likely, hazelnuts function as a staple food. Since their energetic value is very high, containing more than 60% fat, 15% protein, and nearly 17% carbohydrate, in addition to a, lot of, to a large amount of unsaturated fatty acids, minerals, and vitamins. However, they are easily recognizable in contrast to other sources, particularly underground storage organs in the archaeological record. So they might be overestimated and some other things might be underestimated, like some tubers. Their frequent occurrence may also be connected with their roasting, which facilitates hazelnut cracking and grinding, destroys contaminants, induces a nutty flavor, and enables their synchronous harvest, which is... Synchronicity and harvest is important because if you're going to go gathering something, you want it to be there when you're there and all of it to be there. So if I'm going to go gather acorns, I'd hope that the tree would drop it all at the same time so I wouldn't have to come back or miss out. Moving on. The next plant they're talking about is traponantans. Fruits of traponantans are rich in starch protein, and fat. They can be eaten raw as well as roasted or boiled. They can be also preserved for several weeks when ro roasted. As in the case of the hazelnuts, roasting makes them easier to open, grind to flour, and a better flavor. Cornus mass, which is cornelian cherry. Bushes of cornus mass bear edible fruits, which are widely used as food and medicine, since they contain a large amount of vitamin C. Interestingly, Finds of cornus mass, stones, and deposits related to burial infill are reported in Serbia. 
cornus sanguinea. Although the edibility of fruits of cornus sanguinea, so again, cornus, that's the dogwood, is, it, is discussed in, in various papers, they are known to be eaten from the ethnobotanical record. The fruits are slightly toxic, but their palatability and edibility increases after preparation. Moreover, selective use of cornus sanguinea for mesolithic and neolithic fish traps has been observed in the Netherlands. There are finds of stones of cornus sanguinea at several sites, as well as in Denmark. Rubus. Fruits of rubus, which is roses, oh, excuse me, not roses, like um, blackberries and raspberries. Fruits of rubus taxa represent a food resource often referred to as unsuitable for storage because I guess they would they would decay very quickly. Sambucus, nigra, or elderberry represents one of the most versatile plants for food, medicine, crafts, and games. And one plant in particular, red elderberry, is very common in the archaeological record. In Czech Republic, Sambucus racemosa was recorded. But of course, there's processing that has to do with that. And the, the researchers looked at the, the use of red elderberry by Northwest indigenous peoples as a proxy. Kinopodium. Kinopodium has edible foliage or goosefoot, as well as is easily as easy as easily gatherable seeds, which can be harvested in great quantity. Its extensive use for food as well as in medicine is widely known. The green leaves and stems are eaten raw, boiled or dried for future use. The seeds are mostly used for porridge and ground into flour and making bread. Seeds of Kinopodium album are found throughout Mesolithic, the Mesolithic, Mesolithic period. For example, in Denmark, in Germany, in the Czech Republic, they've all been recorded. Rosa or rose or edible, and they have a lot. Of, they have a lot of vitamin C, but they but there are also those seeds and, and hairs in them that need to be rinsed away, as they can cause irritation in the throat. Malice or apple, Malice sylvestris bears good fruit, although their vitamin content is rel relatively poor. However, the energetic value of dried apples is considerable since they contain. 62% carbohydrate. They've been also found at various sites, for example, in Denmark. Tienberg Vig. Green vegetables may also have been important there too, but they are difficult to prove because they wouldn't, not, not a lot of them wouldn't survive unless they were found in, like, say, the teeth of. The skeletons, and you could see that in that in in the, in, in, in the teeth exact in exactly how you would study. Um, you could study the teeth as and look for like proteins in it. Among them are kinopodium. They have um, they were saying potentially stinging nettle, phragmites. They have yellow dock. They have uh, wait. It's, uh, I'm just trying to think of the, the common names. They have Stellaria media, which is um, not quickweed, chickweed. Polygynum, which is, you know, like Japanese knotweed. 
and Potentilla, they all have, can be considered, right? These all contain a lot of different phytochemicals that are different than a lot of the cultivated types since they're wild. And they have a lot of fatty acids, which would be good for the, for the health of the indigenous populations that are harvesting them. Almost done. As already mentioned, underground storage organs are argued to represent an important food resource in Mesolithic Europe. Furthermore, many of the following plants are known for their extremely versatile use. A case study considering the use of Pteridium equinlinum is presented below to illustrate this phenomenon. Not only this fern, but also tax, uh, other taxa, such as uh, plants that are related to beets, to cattails, to wild onions, to aquatic plants. How many different species of plants do we do we know that the population ate? Well, we don't really know as much, and from this paper, but we can, as you're hearing, we can we can hear that there's there are lots. There are you know probably at least fifty. The bracken fern, they had mentioned it before. So here I have that pictures of that, and that's pretty much it for today. I know that was a lot, and it's uh, in the early morning, so uh, my words are a little slurred. But I hope that you get an understanding that our ancestors, some of my ancestors in Central Europe, were very smart people and knew how to engage with the landscape to create abundance. As I, look, as I look out into the forest right now, I see a forest that's generally untended. You know, I've done some here and there, but certainly could use more tending. And that is delicate, you know. That's something that needs to be dealt with at a smaller scale here because the forest generally have received a lot of insults through mechanisms like de deforestation. So I wouldn't want to come in and create that many clearings, but as a demonstration, a place for demonstration, I certainly would see that of value and for biodiversity. And uh, yeah, I would start maybe on a small plot, maybe thin some stuff, plant some stuff. And I like this paper because it talked about, you know, our ancestors who were somewhat, they were, they're generally seen as pre-agricultural, but yet they're still very much engaged in plant tending. And that can be seen as should be seen as sophisticated and potentially more beneficial than, or not even just more beneficial, but for the bodies, right? They're using, they're doing mixed activities throughout the year. They're not only farming one plot of land. They're not sedentary. They're not staying in one spot and farming wheat 100% as like, you know, and having feudal lords to send their, send their, send their grain to, even though it's a little later in time, you can imagine that, you know, you need to be, you're stuck in one piece of land. So I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and today's November 2nd, and please leave me any questions that you have. Thank you so much.